Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Rep Roaster. This is episode number 17. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Win the Future. I'm your host, Brett Broster, and today we have a very special guest, one of my best friends in the world, Zycom Kamsaborabong, who is the chair of Providence Water Supply Board, which handles the water supply for the entire state of Rhode Island, essentially. Um, and Zai is a uh, master of a lot of different trades, but Zai, welcome. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my God. Thank you for being on. So Zai, I feel like Providence Water Supply Board, can you go over and talk a little bit about its importance and some of the kind of responsibilities you have chairing it? Absolutely. So the Providence Water Supply Board is the primary water utility for the state of Rhode Island. We serve 600,000 people, which uh, may not sound a lot in the scheme of the United States, but that's 60% of Rhode Island's million person population. So either directly or through wholesale distribution, we are selling and delivering water to the majority of the state. The board itself is responsible for the overall governance and vision for the utility. And ultimately we see ourselves as the stewards uh, for the water utility for the state of Rhode Island. Zai, with that, what are some of the functions of being the chair of the board that, that you go through and, and kind of some of the day-to-day -day execution that uh, your staff goes through as well? So the staff does the day-to-day -day heavy lifting of actually running the utility. So we have a little over 250 members on our team that are specialists working within the water industry. And they've been doing this for the majority of their careers. At the board level, what we try and do is set for them the broad vision that they need to be executing along uh, on behalf of the ratepayers, but also to try and give them as much air cover as we can to help them navigate regulatory and political affairs that might otherwise be uh, an inhibitance to their overall day-to-day -day work for the utility and the ratepayers. And so what are some of the major issues that you're focused on right now? I know you have a strategic plan that you're kind of following through with. Yeah, so Providence Water is a terrific, terrific asset for the city of Providence and the state of Rhode Island. We produce some of the highest quality drinking water in the US. And, and we can't take credit for that today. A lot of that was because of the good work that was done by the utilities forefathers when they built the system over 100 years ago. And while there have been really good stewards in the interim, our charge today is to make sure we can continue delivering water in a sustainable way into the future consistently for the next 100 years. So a lot of our strategic initiatives are focused on a, making sure Providence Water is in a good position to continue doing that into the future. And then B, making sure that the actual service we're delivering today is being delivered on an equal basis to all the consumers who deserve and are entitled to clean, reliable drinking water. Beyond drinking water, I know that uh, one thing we've kind of discussed is that you have a lot of land. And with that land, obviously you can't, you're limited in what you can and can't do with that based on water contamination being obviously the most important piece. But can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, some of the initiatives you've taken on to, to develop in a clean um, fashion that the, some of the assets that Providence Water Supply Board has? The Providence Water Supply Board, or Providence Water for short, controls a little over 13,000 acres, 5,000 of which we own directly. So, I mean, how much land is that? That's larger than Manhattan. 
So it's a very large watershed. And what that watershed is doing uh, is serving as the ultimate natural filtration for 40, the 40 billion gallon reservoirs that we have that really hold the majority of the water that ultimately are delivered to our consumers. So that watershed, every time it rains, if we get an inch of rain, 100 million gallons are cycling through that watershed. It's filtering through that natural uh, forest to ultimately you know, be held within those uh, reservoir basins, which are ultimately lightly treated and then distributed out to our ratepayers. So anything we do up there needs to be with an eye towards protecting that environment, the biodiversity that exists up there. So one of our strategic initiatives for a while, um, when I first joined the board was, you know, let's let's look at Providence Water for the next 100 years and let's think about the things we need to do to make sure that that utility continues to exist uh, for another 100 years in a, in a good fashion. Uh, and the first part of that is making sure that um, that sort of core of the, of the utility itself, that being the reservoir system, is, is well protected um, and that any development that occurs up there uh, is with an eye towards being environmentally friendly. So a good example of that is our initiative to be completely powered by renewable energy. We looked at the assets that we have, one of which is an incredible amount of, of open space land, and thought about ways we could use that to generate energy to both you know, offset our, our, our carbon footprint, but also to reduce energy costs for uh, the utility and therefore rates for our consumers. So we set to work identifying and building out a 30-acre solar farm on existing open space land, minimizing the amount of relocation of force that we needed uh, to build a 4.9 megawatt solar farm. So today, those 17,000 solar panels are generating all the power that we need to continue running Providence Water, uh, offsetting about a million dollars a year in energy costs for the utility and its ratepayers. And with that, and as you're kind of, obviously that is a forward-looking initiative, what are some of the other things that you look at? Okay, we need to protect our water supply, not today, but not just today, but tomorrow as well. What are some of the initiatives you're taking on to do just that? And what do you see as some of the issues that might come up in the near or long-term future regarding water supply? So we, we took this um, in a multiple step approach, uh, much like you would address any sort of a, an issue that you may have. And for us, our, our biggest issue uh, is the quality of the water that ultimately is received by our ratepayers at the tap, right? So we know that Providence Water produces good water. It's been ranked in the top two in the country in terms of water quality. Uh, the issue is that the actual water that is coming out at the tap for our ratepayers isn't necessarily the same everywhere. A big part of that problem are the you know thousand plus miles of water main that uh, Providence Water controls that are distributing the water, and. While none of our pipes and our utility itself uh, have any sort of lead within our drinking water, the issue is that once the water leaves our water mains and flows through the service line, that's the pipe that goes between the water main in the middle of the street and the homeowner's uh, plumbing system inside their house, that, that line between the two, a lot of times those service lines were made of lead. And a lot of times if the homeowner has a lead service line, that probably also means that they have lead plumbing in their house. In homes built prior to 1986, lead was a common uh, substance uh, used within plumbing uh, for households. And that obviously is not such a good thing for individuals' health. So we set to work looking at ways that we could help um, address and mitigate the presence of lead in drinking water that's actually coming out at the tap that homeowners have. The tough part there is that you know we're we're dealing with pipes that we as a utility don't own oftentimes. We have about 23, 26,000 lead service lands within our, um, within our service area. 
of those, you know, the majority are privately owned. Providence Waters portion of those service lines is only about 11,000, and we're on a consistent scheduled basis to replace all those service lines. But we can't replace the piping that leads from the curb line into a resident's house, and we also can't replace the plumbing inside of a resident's house. So we set to work trying to identify different ways that we could help give homeowners the tools they need to identify whether or not they have a problem, and then actually do something about that problem. What are some of the concerns you get from homeowners regularly um, as it relates to um, kind of the, the water supply board? I know, I know you're dealing with ratepayers, you're dealing with consumers. What are some of the things that on a day-to-day -day basis you'd have to deal with? Yeah, so the big policy balance that you look at um, as a board for utility in general is the quality of service and infrastructure that the utility maintains versus affordability for ratepayers. So we are constantly doing a balancing act of prioritizing infrastructure projects that we know need to get tackled and taken care of um, with ensuring that we are adequately maintaining the infrastructure to deliver high quality, um, high quality services for our customers themselves, that being the quality of the drinking water. And what that requires in addition to our own policy prioritization as a board um, is us navigating a wide array of regulatory agencies that have different requirements on us that we are also required to meet. You know, water is one of the most re regulated products that exists in our country today. Providence Water itself is regulated by over half a dozen, dozen different agencies and any other aspect of government that decides that they are going to take up water as a concern for them day to day. And one of those regulations that's garnered a lot of attention, especially since Flint, Michigan, um, is the potential presence of contaminants in water specifically lead. In Rhode Island, uh, we unfortunately are very familiar with lead because of the uh, substantial problems we had around lead paint in housing that led to lead poisoning for a good number of children. We've been really lucky since in a lot of the mitigation work that in that there's not a single documented case of lead poisoning due to water in the state of Rhode Island. Regardless of that situation, there's no level of lead that is acceptable in our opinion within drinking water. So Providence Water is set to work addressing that objective of eliminating lead in our public drinking water to levels below 10 parts per billion. We're trying to do what we can to make sure that from a health equity perspective, we're making sure that the product we deliver, drinking water, is as pristine um, at the actual tap as it is through the network and the delivery system and the treatment process that we control at Providence Water. That's great, Zai. And Zai, we'll be right back. We just are going to go to a quick break. And thanks everybody for listening. And we'll be right back. When the Future is sponsored in part by Connecticut by the Numbers. If you're looking to learn more about what's happening and why, check out Connecticut by the Numbers, where every number tells a story. Connecticut by the Numbers goes beyond the headlines across the state. The Connecticut news that counts, visit ctnumbers.news or follow them at ctnumbers. All right, everybody, and we're back for the second part of the interview with Zykon Kamsaborovong, uh, also known as Zy, who's head of the Providence, Providence Water Supply Board, uh, also known as Providence Water. So Zy, you talked a little bit about strategic priorities for the organization earlier, but can you talk a little bit more on that of, of how that relates to the organization? Sure, so as I noted, our, our top priority is making sure that the water everybody delivers is high quality, that it meets health standards, and that everybody is experiencing a quality of water that is more or less equivalent. But there are a lot of pieces that go into making sure we can actually meet that objective. Um, so we had a series of strategic initiatives that 
we felt were necessary to get Providence Water at that level that they deserve to be at and that we needed to be at to be a 21st century utility. So we focused on first improving in um, our, our core infrastructure, making sure that the core assets on which the utility relies upon uh, continue to be there long into the future. Second, we looked at ways to improve the customer experience, how customers actually interact with Providence Water and what we're providing to them. And then third, we looked at modernizing the utility. So I, I touched on um, one way we went about doing that when we spoke earlier, which was making sure the entire utility was renew renewable energy powered. That was a big priority for us. Another thing that was important to us um, with regards to being a 21st century utility is focusing on cybersecurity with a dedicated team. If we're investing that much in our hard security, we should also be focused on cybersecurity. So we created our own dedicated cybersecurity team that now does joint operations uh, and drills with both federal and state officials on a regular basis, ensuring that when that day comes and we are uh, attacked with a cyber attack, because it's a matter of um, when, not if, uh, that we're prepared to bounce back as quickly as possible and mitigate any potential damage from that. In addition to renewable energy and cybersecurity, we also focused on making sure we had a diverse and well-qualified staff that reflected the community that we serve. That started with our board. Uh, Providence Water has had some great boards that were terrific stewards, but I wanted to modernize that board to make sure that we had skill sets that were ready to help us tackle 21st century challenges when they came up. I'm proud to say now that the majority of our board are women, the majority of our board are millennials, and we count amongst our ranks experts in medicine, public finance, and housing. So when we start to think back to the other strategic initiatives that we have, improving the customer experience, and stabilize, stabilizing our core infrastructure, um, we had to set out clear objectives that we wanted to hit to reach those. So the first on the customer experience, you know, for years, Providence Water had done business the, the old way, which is uh, very similar, I think, to um, how a lot of other businesses were operating. My day job is at a commercial bank, and we still have branches, and people still come into those branches to pay their bills. But the reality that we know, especially because of COVID, is people are expecting their services in a more convenient manner and format. So we decided to set up online building, billing with automatic bill pay. This seems like a very straightforward no-brainer, um, but when you look at the systems that need to be put in place and the modernization, um, customers don't really want to know the nitty-gritty of it, but it's something they expect, so we put that in place. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we started sharing data, uh, specifically around uh, lead service lines and where they may exist. Again, government has great great sources and collections of data. Our ability to share that to empower the public to understand what their government is doing and how they might be able to take an active role in improving their own situation from an infrastructure perspective is important. So we went ahead and did that. And then fourth, as I noted earlier, uh, was improving our core infrastructure. We're going to hear infrastructure as a term a lot, I think, in the next six months. A lot of that's being driven by the fact that infrastructure for years has been a bipartisan issue. But it's also because infrastructure creates jobs, and it's also because infrastructure is core to our nation's security. From Providence Water's perspective, we looked at this through you know, much the same way I think that a doctor may look at a, a patient that comes into the emergency room, right? First, we wanted to kind of fortify and strengthen what we consider the, the, the heart of the operation. That's the actual watershed and the water treatment plan itself, right? So we finished a series of upgrades that were needed at the water treatment plant that really hadn't been done in, in several decades to make sure that the filtration uh, and the overall treatment process for the water uh, utility was up to modern standards uh, and built to last for another 100 years. Second, we looked at um, rebuilding uh, or, or relocating and modernizing our headquarters. 
uh, for our administrative engineering and financial staff. When a water main breaks, as anybody knows who's ever had a water leak in their house or a toilet start overflowing, every minute matters. So we moved our headquarters to an industrial park in the geographic center of our footprint, um, saving you know, thousands of miles on our vehicles, reducing our response times, uh, and also being a more fitting setting. The other issue is that the prior headquarters was located in a residential neighborhood. So when that water main broke at 4 a.m., we were moving piles of gravel right next to a resident's bedroom uh, or multiple residences' houses. And that was a problem that wasn't acceptable. Uh, so relocating it also was important to giving back the community some of its space that was important to them from a community perspective and a quality of life perspective. If we want to recruit uh, and, and retain high quality talent, uh, we know that the quality of the work environment is important. Civil servants deserve a civilized workplace. And when you're sitting there next to a steam pipe that is duct taped shut, um, that is not a great uh, worker retention plan for us. So, you know, looking at having a modern headquarters is really important. So our new facility is over 175,000 square feet. Um, I think it is on par with some of the nicest utilities in the United States. It includes indoor parking for our entire fleet of vehicles, which are increasingly electric vehicles. It is covered in a solar rooftop array. Uh, and it was financed using bonds that we, or loans that we borrowed through the Rhode Island State Infrastructure Bank that were federally subsidized low interest rate um, bonds, assuring that the long-term costs for a new facility like that were minimized from a future interest perspective. Interesting. So as you talk about um, looking to the future and you mentioned infrastructure and modernization of it, not only with uh, Providence Water, but as you look nationally, what are some of the things you would like to see in terms of investment in infrastructure as it relates to water supply that you think would be beneficial in the short and long term? So, Brett, you're, you're hitting on a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart because it's also what I do for a day job. Um, in my day job, I am a public finance banker. So what does that mean? It means that um, I am the guy who lends money to cities and towns, school districts, state entities, and yes, water and wastewater utilities like Providence Water. Um, when they need to borrow funds for capital projects. Um, originally, my work prior to becoming water board chair was working down in Manhattan um, as, a, as an investment banker doing this work. I came home to serve as an advisor to communities and ultimately shifted into um, running a lending group that lends money to government entities east of the Mississippi. So I think infrastructure has a huge amount of potential to not only create jobs, as I noted earlier, but really build us with an economic base uh, for the future that our communities can use to um, develop and rebound out of COVID. And I think water is a particularly interesting place because it's been neglected for so long. Any road that you can think of probably has a water line below it. And the issue with the maintenance of our water infrastructure is that while a road is repaired every time there's a pothole, the same thing isn't happening with a water line. Really, oftentimes, in a lot of utilities, those water lines aren't getting replaced until they break. That's the equivalent of waiting until there's a sinkhole to do repaving on a road. And what you're doing is you are building up um, a massive backload of deferred maintenance that needs to be addressed, um, not only for the security of the utility, but for the future economic viability of the surrounding area. So. We have a, a serious, serious need to make sure that we are continuing to maintain that infrastructure. And we need to think about innovative ways to do that. For a long time, the way that we have gone about financing infrastructure improvements in the US um, is by going out and borrowing money. 
right? So we have a problem, we need to rebuild the headquarters, we need to replace a water main. Um, we'll, we'll take some of that money out of uh, the, the, the funds that our ratepayers pay on a day-to-day -day basis uh, to fund that upfront. But overall, we're borrowing money out on a 20 or 30 year basis and slowly paying down those funds. That is not the way that the majority of the developed world operates. The majority of the way that the developed world finances its infrastructure is very similar to how you and I finance um, our homes. Uh, we put down a certain amount, we put down a certain amount of cash that we have available to us. I think the standard is 20% for most homes, right? And then we borrow the remainder. Um, in the US, we kind of borrow the entirety of it. So the question arises of where are we going to find that equity funding? The federal government for a long time has been one of the sources of that funding. But when you look at the way that the rest of the developed world is going about funding the infrastructure, um, they're using some portion of equity from the private sector. Now in the US, there hasn't been much success at public-private partnerships um, for a number of reasons, but I think that as the federal government looks towards ways they could maybe improve um, how we look at our infrastructure model, looking at ways to align infrastructure for investment from the private sector uh, will be a pivotal part to the future success and rebuild of America's uh, infrastructure. Oh, that's great. And how would you recommend that people like yourself, I know you've been involved in the community and in government between the private sector and public sector um, since college, but how would you recommend folks get involved in their community short of putting their name on a ballot? <laughs> Ask, right? I mean, it's incredibly uh, brave to put your name on a ballot. So Brad, I give you a lot of credit for um, taking up the mantle uh, in your run for the zoning board in Milford when you first did that, that's a really nerve wracking thing. But you don't you don't need to do that to be engaged to make a civic difference. If you look um, at, at your municipality's website, there are probably a bunch of different departments. And a lot of those different departments have governing boards of uh, lay people from the community who decide that they want to get engaged, make a difference, um, add their perspective and their voice to um, how our government is actually run at the end of the day. So for Providence Water, um, you know, I was aware of vacancies coming up, but a lot of what I have done over the past several years is try to recruit board candidates that I think might not otherwise be engaged in the process of government, but who have a lot to add. So let me give you a good example of that. Um, obviously, the, the lead issue um, was going to be a, a major challenge for us. So I started thinking about um, what other areas have dealt with a crisis like lead. And housing, as I mentioned earlier, is one of those spaces. So I, I looked through um, the talented individuals that lead our local uh, housing agencies initiative, Rhode Island Housing, uh, with regards to things like compliance um, with lead paint requirements and found a young female attorney there who uh, was very well recognized for her expertise um, at being a good uh, counsel for uh, Rhode Island's uh, housing and asked her to join the board, which she willingly has, has embraced. And she's been a terrific advocate and advisor for us on our own initiatives to try and address uh, lead in drinking water. Another good example uh, is a recent addition to our board, Dr. Um, Amaguero Brady, who is an internal medicine uh, physician in Rhode Island. Um, she also is Mexican American, so she is helpful in that she reflects uh, the best of our community and has been absolutely pivotal to our ability to navigate the COVID crisis as an essential service utility, um, keeping you know, our most uh, important workers on the front lines safe throughout the crisis, um, but also providing you know, pivotal insight uh, whenever we are dealing with a public health issue uh, as a utility. That's amazing. Um, 
Sai, I can't thank you enough. I don't want to take up more of your time, but uh, any parting words for, for the folks listening or anything else you want to address? No, Brad, I appreciate you coming on and, and having me on as a guest uh, for your podcast. I would say to people interested in getting engaged, just be vocal about the fact that you are interested in being engaged. Uh, talk to people. Most of our communities, wherever you happen to live, tend to be relatively tight-knit. Um, and you know, reach out to your elected officials, let them know that you're interested in serving, uh, because I think it's been um, a great experience for me. And I think that if we want to keep making our communities better, we need more people engaged doing the work of government. Agreed and much appreciated, Zai. You're the best. Thank you for joining. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Win the Future. And stay tuned for our next one. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast, sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.